Hi, dance friends, and welcome to the Dance Edit Podcast. I'm Margaret Fuhrer. I'm Courtney Escoyne. And I'm Amy Brandt. Hooray, Amy. I'm doing like big jazz hands right now. Um, That's right. We have a new co-host as of this week. And I'm guessing a lot of you already know Amy Brandt. She's the editor-in-chief of Point Magazine. She's a former professional ballet dancer. She's just an all-around superstar. But um, actually, rather than me introducing you, Amy, would you like to say a little bit about yourself? Um, Sure. Uh, I danced professionally for about 19 years with Milwaukee Ballet and with the Suzanne Farrell Ballet in Washington, D.C., as well as uh, several companies in New York City, and um, have been uh, at Dance Media working as an editor since 2013 um, and at the helm of Point since 2014. So. Oh my gosh, 2014. Has it really been that long? Yeah. Time is so fake. I know. Time is so fake. Time is fake. Also, I can remember being an intern and being incredibly intimidated by Amy Brandt, just like, <laughs> for no reason. We never spoke at that point. But like, I just, she was just like, so elegant and like, serious and focused on everything. And then now I'm like, oh my gosh, Amy's a doll. She's one of my favorite humans. Oh. But I do remember being terrified of you, Amy. I find that very odd. <laughs> anyone would find me scary but thanks well amy will be swapping out with lydia every other week as our third co-host and we are very excited and very lucky to have her welcome amy thank you so much i'm very excited to be here so in today's episode we will discuss a wave of new ballets that celebrate queerness without centering cis gay men who are usually the most visible queer members of the ballet community On a not unrelated note, we'll talk about one artist who is working to queer, traditionally conservative flamenco culture. Then, since the In the Heights film opens tomorrow, um, we will take a moment to discuss a few different stories about how the movie's dance scenes came to be. And finally, we'll have our interview with Adriana Pierce, the dancer and choreographer and founder of the Queer the Ballet movement. Um, You know, those ballets celebrating queerness from a non-male perspective that I just mentioned, Adriana is actually making some of them. She talked about how isolated she felt as a lesbian in professional ballet and about how she's working to build both representation for and community among queer women and non-binary ballet dancers. Um, Before we kick off this kind of gloriously pride-centric episode, just a quick reminder to subscribe to this podcast on your listening platform of choice, um, or if you're an Apple podcast person, to give us a follow. They just changed that process slightly. We are also always grateful for your feedback via ratings and especially reviews. Please let us know what you want to hear more or less of, you know, complain about and or compliment our dance puns, (laughs) all of the above. We love to see all of it. All right, now it's time for our weekly dance headline rundown, which is Amy's first ever. Let's go. All right, so a few more Broadway updates to start us off this week. The Bill T. Jones choreographed new musical Paradise Square has announced plans to begin Broadway previews on February 22nd and open on March 20th, following an out-of-town tryout in Chicago this fall. Another musical about legendary Motown group The Four Tops, working title I'll Be There, is also hoping for a spring 2022 Broadway opening after a planned out-of-town tryout in Detroit. And even further afield, a Broadway revival of Bob Fosse's Dancin', helmed by original cast member Wayne Salento, is eyeing the 2022 through 23 season, the show that launched so many choreographic careers. So many. If, you know, doesn't it feel like we're getting back to sort of the pre-pandemic Broadway news cycle in a heartening way? A little bit, yeah. yeah. Like, we're actually hearing about stuff that wasn't just, oh, this is supposed to open on Broadway and it didn't. Like, we're actually getting right. new things announced. It's actual news. It's yeah. very exciting. On Sunday... June 6th, you may have caught it on television, the Kennedy Center broadcast their annual Kennedy Center Honors, which in addition to country singer Garth Brooks, violinist Midori, and folk singer Joan Baez, honored Broadway and movie star Dick Van Dyke and dance icon Debbie Allen. And they were celebrated with some great dance numbers, including a performance of Fame and Step in Time with some very recognizable dance faces, including Tyler Peck, Derek Huff, Desmond Richardson, And I believe some members of Complexions I saw out there as well. So you can go check it out on YouTube if you missed it on Sunday. Also, Debbie just looked so fabulous, that dress. I know. I know. So exciting to see her honored like that. 
Uh, further honoring some dance legends, uh, tap dancer, choreographer, educator, and all-around icon Dormisha will receive the 2021 Jacob's Pillow Dance Award this Saturday during Global Pillow, a virtual gala. The annual award includes a $25,000 unrestricted grant, and I don't think we can wish a big enough congratulations. Uh, so, so well-deserved. Such great news. And we'll include the link to that virtual Global Pillow Gala where she'll be honored in the show notes so you can watch it. It's free. Please check it out. Boston Ballet has announced their 2021-22 season, which includes eight world premieres. Five of them are by women choreographers for the company's Choreograph Her program in March 2022. Uh, Those choreographers include Claudia Schreier, Tyler Peck, visual artist Chantel Martin, and former Cunningham dancer Melissa Toogood, as well as Boston Ballet principal Leah Sirio. So mark your calendars for that performance in March. They also announced some world premieres by Yorma Ello, William Forsyth, and Stephen Galloway, who is former principal at Ballet Frankfurt, a costume designer, and also uh, apparently a choreographer for the Rolling Stones. Hmm. I missed that part of the press release. I mean, two points from me, the fact that Forsyth is doing Blake Works too. Very hype for that. Also would love it if the women choreographers weren't all sequestered on a single program. That would be really nice to just get them in the rest of the season too, guys. But progress a little bit of progress (laughs) it is progress yeah uh the andrew w mellon foundation has announced details on creatives rebuild new york a three-year 125 million dollar initiative that will offer a guaranteed income program to 2400 artists from across disciplines with acute financial needs and an employment program to provide 300 artists with funding to achieve employment in full-time salaried positions at small to mid-sized community arts organizations across New York State. The advisory board is expected to be announced July 1st, and details about the funding process will come on August 31st. University of North Carolina School of the Arts has appointed dancer, educator, and choreographer Endelin Taylor as its new dean of the School of Dance starting August 1st. Taylor is a former principal dancer with Dance Theater of Harlem and served as principal of its school. Uh, She's also performed on Broadway in The Lion King, Aida, and Carousel. And she spent the last six years at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, where she teaches ballet and musical theater as an associate professor of dance. So very huge, impressive resume. She brings a wealth of knowledge to UNCSA. And those are some lucky dancers, I think. Absolutely. And as it begins its 40th anniversary season, Elisa Monte Dance has rebranded itself as Emerge 125, a nod to the company's base in New York City's Harlem neighborhood. Yeah, and the idea of emerging, that it's constantly moving forward as opposed to being stuck in any one point in time. It feels like that name speaks very directly to the brilliant work that Tiffany Ray Fisher has been doing as Mm. artistic director of the company. And if you have a few minutes, please do listen to the interview we did with Tiffany back in episode... 49? 49. She's a genius. Yeah, really brilliant. And full of light and joy. Yeah. And we want to honor three dancers who have passed away recently. German performer and choreographer Raymond Hogue, who was a dramaturge for Pina Bausch before creating pieces that contemplated his own non-normative body. He died at the age of 72. Russian-born ballerina Violetta Elvin who danced with Sadler's Wells Ballet and was seen as a potential rival to Margot Fontaine. She died at the age of 97. And great Italian ballerina Carla Fracci, former prima ballerina La Scala in the American Ballet Theater, died at the age of 84. We need to be done losing dance icons this year, please. Can we, like, stop it, 2021? Stop it. It's been a lot. All right, so... In our first roundtable discussion today, we want to talk about a collection of ballets premiering this month that are allowing queer women and non-binary artists to be their complete and authentic selves on stage. Siobhan Burke wrote an excellent piece for the New York Times about some of these works and about why this kind of visibility is so important and why it has until very recently been so rare. And then the Washington Post also did a story about one of the new works, um, Katie Pyle's Giselle of Loneliness for their company Ballets. That actually premieres tonight, the day that you're listening. So later in this episode, you'll hear Adriana Pierce articulate a lot of the points made in these stories beautifully and thoughtfully and very personally. And we don't want to, you know, step on her toes, so to speak. But We did want to talk a bit about the premieres themselves and about what makes them so revolutionary. 
Go, Courtney, go. I'm just made of excitement about this whole segment. Uh, <laughs> so I'll actually start with uh, Katie Pyle's Giselle of Loneliness. It was supposed to debut uh, last summer, obviously postponed due to COVID-19. Um, and they have since reworked the piece uh, to make it like really work in a really cool way with the digital format. So basically the concept is in the course of this Giselle, uh, seven dancers who are either uh, female identifying or non-binary dancers are essentially auditioning for the role of Giselle. Katie talks about in the Washington Post piece about putting together these like five minute variations that combine all the most difficult parts of what Giselle does technically in the course of the ballet. Uh, but what it's also doing, uh, particularly in the premiere tonight, is taking these dancers auditioning and then having the audience vote on who best fulfills the role of Giselle. And in so doing that, it is sort of asking audiences to look at the ways that they are complicit in the heteronormativity that is inherent in ballet and particularly emblematic in Giselle, which is sort of the... Yeah, like Giselle is kind of the epitome of balletic femininity. She's beautiful and frail and loves to dance and is supported by the man and all these things like very floaty and ethereal um, and kind of taking that and saying, OK, but who does this leave out? Who does this legacy leave out and uses this ballet as a way to confront the ways that dancers who don't necessarily fit into that in particular queer dancers and giving them a chance to put their stamp on it. And also, they sort of gather as willies. And in a way, Albrecht is, in this case, ballet itself. And so they're like the willies coming for ballet itself. I just, I love everything about this. I'm actually watching it tonight. I'm really, 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 really excited about it, in case you can't tell. I loved Katie's quote in the Washington Post piece about like, I, I'm not quoting it directly, but you know, the willies hang out in the woods and kill men for a living. And that just sounded like kind of a great time. <laughs> like, I mean, obviously joking. I'm not but... saying that I sent that to a group of friends immediately after reading that, <laughs> but I might have. And then the um, other piece that was uh, sort of focused on in these two stories uh, was by Adriana Pierce, who we'll be hearing from later. Uh, and she created a duet for freelance dancer Courtney Taylor Key and Washington Ballet studio company member Audrey Malik. It's called Animals and Angels. It's going to be a duet for two women on point who are in love. And uh, Courtney Taylor Key talked about in the New York Times story reaching out to Adriana and saying uh, she wanted to do a duet with another woman. She wanted to do it with Audrey because she's another black woman and she wanted it to be a Juliet and Juliet which mm -hmm. is the point at which I started crying reading this New York Times piece that Siobhan wrote so beautifully. Yeah. I love that this work is trying to break down the gendered aspect of ballet technique, choreographed by somebody who has spent her life training intensively on point. Mm -hmm. So it's an artist with a deep understanding of point work itself, rethinking point work as a tool for expression instead of a gendered thing. I think that's really exciting stuff. And Adriana's earlier duet that she choreographed for two dancers from American Ballet Theater, it was a partnered pas de deux on point, also explored many of those same ideas. And she talked about that in her interview as well. It's not related to queerness, but I've seen some really interesting women-on-women -women partnering. I'm interested in seeing what I, Adriana is and seeing her work and to see the possibilities that are coming out with, you know, how women can lift each other, use weight transference. I am really excited to see a new story in addition to how women can partner each other. You know, I'm, I'm interested in seeing that new perspective of a love story, basically, between two women on stage. So I think it's exciting. And I think it's opening up the ballet world so much more to new possibilities. You know, there are going to be some people who are resistant to the idea, but there's so much space for more. Well, and I think we've talked about it before, even if we aren't necessarily in ballet using these choreographic conventions to tell queer stories necessarily, I think that regardless of what kind of story that you are trying to tell, uh, embracing the possibilities inherent in taking away those gender distinctions at least just to find new choreographic uh, approaches and voices, I think it can only enrich ballet. And I think the more open, and I maintain this for society in general, as well as for the arts, I think the more open we can be to different gender expressions and different sexualities and different perspectives on the world and what that lends, I think the more rich and nuanced work and art is going to come out of it. 
Here, here, and that segues directly into our next roundtable topic of discussion. Um, we'd like to discuss a feature that ran in The New Yorker this past week about flamenco artist Manuel Lignan, and he is the subject of the new documentary Flamenco Queer, which follows his efforts to disrupt conservative flamenco culture. Because flamenco, like ballet, is sort of built along the gender binary. There are rigid rules about what women and men, quote unquote, should be doing in terms of technique and costuming and performing. And Lignan is a flamenco dancer of great expertise who does not play by those rules. He dances in drag. He does quote-unquote female steps. He finds ways to express his truest self through this art that he loves but wants to see change. Um, and just a caveat here before we start a discussion, none of us are flamenco experts, so we're really just encouraging you to go read the story and watch the accompanying film to get a more complete picture. But we did want to highlight Lignan and his work because flamenco's LGBTQ community is so chronically undercovered. I mean, even in dance world media. I agree. And, you know, I, I found the film so interesting. Um, and I saw a lot of par parallels to ballet, actually. Um, just mm -hmm. even in, you know, in our own ballet training, we have men's class, we have point class, which has traditionally been for women. And I've seen in my own career and training and experience, dancers be discouraged from performing steps a certain way. I remember I had one director who used to tell the men, you look a bit minty, you know, when he wanted <laughs> them to be more weighted and masculine, quote unquote. So, you know, I, I just saw a lot of parallels to ballet in that in this film. And there was a quote in the article, um, I'm not quoting it directly, but something that art must evolve with society to stay relevant, but it takes artists to make those changes. And mm. it was kind of referencing how, you know, flamenco is this very classical art form in Spain. It goes, it has a very steeped in tradition, but that society and culture is changing and evolving all the time. And if the art form itself does not evolve with it, then it risks being lost. And yet at the same time, you need brave artists like Manuel to to kind of take those steps. And you see his fear and his trepidation a little bit in the film. You, you know, he talks about being nervous about kind of exposing himself this way. But um, I also thought it was interesting, you know, you, we see him teaching a class of young students and he's showing them these hand gestures, you know, where they're rotating the wrists. And he's saying, when I was growing up, they told me it had to be two fingers pointed down, you know, and that's the way it had to be. He's like, but I, I didn't like that. I liked to use all of my fingers. And he says, you have a choice. And so he gives his mm -hmm. class mostly girls, but I think there's one boy, you know, he's like, you have a choice to, to choose which way you want to do it. Which is a gender distinction in flamenco, because uh, for the women, you use the whole hand to articulate, Okay, to my knowledge. This is my, like, I was wondering about that little yeah. flamenco that I've done. Yeah. Uh, whereas the two fingers would be a more masculine presentation. There's less flair in the fingers, um, even though they're actually basically identical wrist movements that you would do. And like, it's actually similar. Another similarity to ballet is that there are basics that you learn regardless of uh, your assigned gender. And then it, a lot of what is just focused on and emphasized and the performance quality of flamenco comes in and has these very gender distinctions. If you're looking at traditional flamenco, which is what you would see in a tablao. So like if you, you know, if you go to Spain and go to a cafe or restaurant and there it's a tablao and they'll have flamenco performances, it'll be very traditional with the singer and the flamenco dancer and very gender distinctions about what exactly is done. There's also like traditional like sequences of dances that you'll learn as you're coming up, like those can be repeated. But there's also another thread of flamenco, which is absolutely fascinating, which uh, I think Manuel actually kind of does a good job of bridging the two. There's another dis like side that's very contemporary flamenco that is very concerned with innovation and very concerned with, okay, what can we use this form to say? And there are a lot of really brilliant flamenco artists out there um, both within and without the queer community who uh, use the form as a way of questioning, okay, well, what does femininity mean? What does masculinity mean? Rocio Molina is someone who does incredible work in this vein and tours all over with it. And I think watching uh, the footage of Manuel, it was really interesting because uh, he dancing in drag is wearing something that is very much like from that traditional flamingo side, but traditionally worn by a woman. 
And so it's this fascinating commentary that comes out then of what does it mean for a man in drag to be doing these traditional steps in this traditional costume? Yeah, I kept thinking about Rosio Molina, too, because I think she's part of the Nuevo Flamenco movement that you were mm. referencing, that her movements are modern isn't the right word, but her works are more transgressive, I guess, than Lignan's. She's operating fully often fully outside of that traditional flamenco framework. But Amy, what you were saying about the parallels to ballet, and I'm sorry to like center ballet in all of our conversations. <laughs> it's just this is the, the world I came up in. But yeah, the first thing that I thought of watching Lignan was the Trox. And I do think there's an overlap there in that Lignan and his dancers and the Trox earn respect because of their extensive expertise and their respective forms, like the obvious skill and the knowledge that they, they all have lends them authority. But Lignan, what he's doing, not that it's without a sense of humor, but it's not a farce the way that Trock's performances are. It's instead a subverting of tradition because that's what feels most right and honest to the performers, which mm. I think is really beautiful. Mm -hmm. And and yeah, I mean, just like as we were saying with other works by queer performers in ballet, how exciting are the possibilities that that kind of thinking opens up? Like the yeah. world is ready for this. Well, and also like flamenco is so much about duende, about spirit. And I think opening and allowing queer artists to be who they are authentically on stage, again, is only going to enrich the form. Yeah, the theme of the episode. Alrighty, so last on the docket today, we have the premiere of the In the Heights film, which is finally happening this weekend. A few different recent stories have gotten into how choreographer Christopher Scott used dance to bring the musical to life on screen, because dance is such an important part of this work's storytelling. And then Warner Brothers actually went ahead and released the whole first eight minutes of the film on YouTube this week, too. And that clip includes this massive dance scene, part of which appears to be filmed in the reflection of the bodega's window, which is bananas. We, I mean, there's a lot to talk about here. I mean, I watched that eight minutes this morning and I was smiling the whole time and then also tearing up simultaneously. And if that doesn't summarize my feelings about this movie finally coming out, I don't know what does. <laughs> Pretty much it. <laughs> I agree. Um, I actually lived in Washington Heights for many years. So I am very excited to see this. I, I can't wait. I keep looking for, you know, landmarks I recognize, streets I recognize, um, businesses I recognize and whatnot. Um, it's been really fun to, to see it. It's such a great area of New York, too. It, it is so rich in culture because, you know, there's a huge Dominican population. And there's also a big Jewish population. And there's also a lot of performing artists that live in the area as well. So there is so much authenticity to that neighborhood is the only thing I can think of. I just, I cannot wait to see this movie. I've been waiting all year for it to come out. You know, and it's it's Lynn's neighborhood. And this was like his big yes. breakout Broadway musical. And then they filmed it in the neighborhood. And like Christopher Scott talked about in his Dance Magazine interview, like, yeah, like performing, like getting all these performers set up on site, like sometimes had like inherent challenges. Like, oh, there's a huge crack in the middle of the sidewalk that we have to figure out how we're going to dance around. But like, we wanted that energy. We wanted to actually be there, which like totally has precedence in like the Jerome Robbins West Side Story movie. Mm -hmm. Like that was the first major movie musical that was actually shot on location in New York City. And there they went twice as long as they were supposed to. And the budget was insane. And Jerome Robbins was like, I have no idea if this is going to work, but we'll see. And then now, you you know, here we are 60 years later with this magnificent looking film. And in this opening scene, we see so many dancers just out on the sidewalk doing their thing. And it's, you know, they're in unison, but everyone has their own like verve. And just Christopher Scott did such a great job, like pulling out choreography when choreography needed to be pulled out and then mm -hmm. pulling it back and keeping it subtle whenever you really needed to listen to the lyrics, because we all know Lin-Manuel loves a complex rhythm and just... <laughs> mm. I also read, I think in the Daily News, how they did dance auditions in both LA and New York City. And that it was like very clear that they had to use New York City dancers because the difference was so huge. You know, like <laughs> the dancers in LA were very polished, were very like uh, professional. And the, the dancers in New York just had a, a totally different vibe to them, a rawness to them that really captured the the culture in the neighborhood that they were trying to harness there. Yeah, 
you know, I kept thinking watching that clip about how deftly Christopher Scott and actually the whole team of choreographers, we should mm-hmm. acknowledge that yes. it's not just Chris, but also Ebony Williams and Dana Wilson and then Eddie Torres Jr. and Princess Serrano, this whole group of brilliant artists. They played so deftly with scale in a way that was mm. especially camera friendly. Um, like some of the most effective bits of choreography are when they pull it back because the lyrics are doing something crazy. And it's just these slightly ingenious ways that like Uznavi and Sunny are throwing cans around the Budeva and stickering them. And then you pull out to this epic dance number in the streets with what, what appears to be hundreds of people. That impact is going to hit you full in the chest on a movie theater screen. And I love how they transitioned us into that because the mm-hmm. shot is at first of um, Uznavi like looking out the window and he's singing to the camera but you see in the reflection dancers doing choreography and it's i need to see this on a big screen i i love that as a sort of cinematic play on the musical theater idea of like daydreams manifesting in reality like you Mm -hmm. see the reflection in the bodega window and it's like is he just imagining this and then you Mm -hmm. pull out and it's like oh no actually there are literally (laughs) hundreds of dancers in the street also like shout out to anthony ramos for killing that unison choreography at the end like i didn't fully process like oh no that's that's him that's him doing that okay just i can't wait for him to just do all the things like he's gonna blow up (laughs) everyone's gonna have a crush on him after this rightly so like mm, get it i feel like that's the only way to end is just by saying yet again anthony ramos is gonna be he is a star he's going to be a bigger star and we can't wait yes just you wait. I, I wasn't going to do it. Oh, you went there. I love it. Okay. <laughs> that was actually completely the wrong melody. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to take a break because we're way over time. When we come back, we'll have our interview with Adriana Pierce. So stay tuned. All right, dance friends. I am very excited to be here now with dancer and choreographer and activist Adriana Pierce and her cat. Hi, Adriana. (laughs) Hi. (laughs) Thank you so much for coming on today. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Um, Adriana danced for seven seasons at Miami City Ballet before leaving to focus on choreography and musical theater. You will see her as a jet in Steven Spielberg's upcoming West Side Story film. And she's also the creator of Queer the Ballet, which is a movement that aims to increase queer visibility and especially the visibility of queer women and non-binary dancers in classical ballet. And we're going to talk about that work in much more detail today. But first, Adriana, would you start by telling listeners what you think they should know about your dance story, your relationship with dance? Yeah. Um, You know, I started dancing very young and it was clear early on that um, it was uh, something that I loved to do and did well and um, wanted to pursue. Actually, I grew up wanting to do uh, musical theater. I wanted to be on Broadway as a young person. Ballet wasn't really ever on the list. I um, somewhat defiantly would say that I was only doing ballet to help my jazz technique. (laughs) Um, but, uh, yeah, but then one of my teachers recommended that I audition for the School of American Ballet. And so I went and it kind of opened my eyes to this whole new, beautiful world of Balanchine. And I kind of fell in love with ballet and, um, was kind of went on that track. Um, and then I did my apprenticeship with New York City Ballet. And like you said, was in Miami and now I'm back in New York doing musical theater and whatever, comes my way in addition to pursuing my choreography. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't realize that your um your work in musical theater now that's a full circle moment instead of a departure. That's Total kind of full circle. Yeah, it was really exciting. <laughs> and especially, you know, when I um when I did uh, Carousel on Broadway, it was working with Justin Peck, so it was I felt a perfect transition, you know, working yeah. within um of movement sphere that I was comfortable with, but also finally getting to realize this other dream that I also had. So I'm very lucky. Yeah, like the middle of your Venn diagram of of interests. Yeah. Um, so you've talked in some other interviews about some of your experiences growing up as a queer female in the ballet world. And if if you're willing to talk about this, what sort of messaging did you get about gender and sexual identity as a ballet student and as a young ballet professional? Well, I think the biggest thing is that I just felt this overwhelming sense of isolation. And I think that that is the overarching 
theme that I felt I thought I was the only one like me. I didn't have any example or anyone to look up to or any sort of sense of community. And so when I did come up against um, whether, you know, overt homophobia or homophobia that might have been a little more subtle, um, mixed in with the sexism that just happens as a woman um, in the world, but also in our field, um, I didn't know how to handle it. And I think that 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 was the biggest thing for me, um, feeling alone, feeling like I didn't have a sense of community. And um, when I, yeah, would, would try to find ways to cope, but not not necessarily understanding um, how to do that. And um, ballet is beautiful, but it's also a difficult field to work in. You, it's very hard. It's it's tiring. Um, working in a ballet company has a whole set of politics and and things and so i often felt as though i was working in a world that didn't see me and um i constantly felt as though i needed to navigate or negotiate the parts of myself that i let ballet have or let ballet um see and that was my way of i think protecting myself there, yeah, there wasn't a way for you to be your complete self in this space. You've started answering this question already, but but what is it about ballet, both its technique and its culture, that makes it an often unwelcoming space for queer, female, and non-binary artists in particular? Well, ballet, first of all, exists very solidly on the gender binary. Um, it mm -hmm. relies on it in a lot of ways. And I think that that's partly, no, mainly be, its tradition, where it came from, um, and the the relationships between the men and women um, on stage, and how they, yeah, how they connect with each other and, and interact with each other. That's inherent in 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 ballet's um, history. Um, so I think that that plays a really huge role. But I think that there's um, there's a cutthroat <laughs> element to ballet. I mean, it's so hard. It's so elite. Um, and you want to succeed, and so you're it, it, it you you want to fall into whatever categories um, are already exist in order to be successful. So I think that those the the reliance on gender norms and, and the gender binary absolutely play play into it, and we also. Uh, are socialized in very different ways. We treat our young dancers in very specific ways, whether they're, uh, if they are a girl, if they are a boy, and then they're on this track. So, um, and, and there's very little, there's very little wiggle room there. And I think that then we get into a situation where those dancers are, um, are adults and in, in the professional world, and they have been so carefully conditioned to fit in these in these types um, that it's very difficult to, to break out of them. And But for me, it's always been that I feel in, in my own body, I feel that I encompass a lot of um, feelings and, and adjectives and, and, and movement. And I, and so part of my work now is wanting to try to reconcile that feeling that I have when I dance that's so freeing and beautiful and joyful um, with that, that, you know, remembering how it felt to kind of like only show or be part of myself in order to fit into that world. And, and I, I, I truly feel that my being there in that world is, is evidence that, that says that it, ballet can be more because there are people like me, um, so many different types of identities and people with all sorts of different gender expressions that can do ballet and, and get so much joy out of it. So there has to be a way to, to reconcile both of those things. Yeah. Yeah. Ballet contains multitudes. People contain multitudes. There should be space for all of that within exactly. within the art. Yeah. And that actually things that you're touching on that last answer lead into my next question, which is about the differences between how queer female dancers are seen and how queer male ballet dancers are seen, because all of them are facing uphill battles. And yet queer men occupy a very different space in the ballet world. And I think that's connected to 
this sense of like exceptionalism for boys in ballet because there are so few boys starting out that they receive that they're just treated differently and and that then affects what happens down the line as well but i don't i don't know why i'm talking about this i'd like to hear what you think about how that all plays out <laughs> well yeah but that's definitely part of it i mean you're right it's like there there are there we allow men certain um leeway that we just would never allow women because well you don't you know you don't want to do this or you aren't good enough well we'll find another one you know down mm-hmm. the street to, to to take your place and so there's always this feeling of being expendable and i think that um as, as a woman um and i but i think and you know this is what i always say is that it's the addition of the sexism along with the homophobia that makes it so much more difficult to be a queer woman um in a ballet space and the men don't experience sexism because they're men. So they, so there's, there's, they move about the space in a very different way. So, so, you know, and I have a lot of gay, gay male friends who I love and adore and I cherish that friendship because when I did feel so isolated and alone in ballet companies, at the very least, I, you know, I did feel as though I had, I, I could talk through some of what I was feeling with them, but we could never fully meet um, fully meet there. I, I remember when one of my friends uh, in the in the company said to me, "Well, you know, do you ever feel as though when you see discrimination against the gay men in the company, again, whether it's overt or more subtle, does that at least make you feel like at least you're not the only one?" And I was just like, "Well, no, because I'm not even considered. Like, it's like it's mm-hmm. like it's so it's so separate from my experience." So it's not even like we can share in our own, <laughs> we can't even like share in our own um, experiences of discrimination because they're different and they look different and they sound different. Um, part of, part of uh, my struggle as a queer woman is having to convince people that women are sexual beings who have like very complex identities and gender expression and and sexuality it's very difficult for people to accept that women could exist beyond this box that we that we put them in and men just don't they don't come again come up against that same wall that women do yeah and especially in ballet because ballet has been positioned in the mainstream world as this like pinnacle of traditional femininity and like if you're in ballet like of course you want to wear tutus and you want to be perceived a certain way and you have a certain vision of womanhood but that's all just projected onto dancers that's not necessarily who they are right and it's not necessarily who they are and it's not the only way that ballet can needs to be Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right yeah and projected onto ballet by, mm-hmm. from the outside often or from institutions within within the art form. Um, so let's talk about the beginnings of Queer the Ballet. How, what inspired it? Was there sort of a lightning bolt moment or was it more a culmination of all these years of experiences? Well, I think the pandemic um, yeah. affected all of us in so many ways. I spent the first half of it, I would say, just feeling so despondent. I mean, I lost a lot of work. It was like very difficult to see any sort of way forward, both for myself and for the world. I mean, I just definitely sat in that low place for a little while, not really knowing how to pull myself out of it. But then something that happened over the summer was that I started finally connecting with other queer women and non-binary dancers all of from all over the world and I think there so you know I always felt as though I was the only one but the the reality is that we're all over we we do exist um we just don't know and and the community doesn't ever talk about it so um I finally along with a couple other dancers was able to connect with all these queer artists and we started um getting on zoom together and (laughs) having like little zoom parties and for the first time was able to connect on a level that was truly meaningful. Um, We shared our experiences. A lot of them were very similar. Um, And that sense of community was so overwhelming for me. It really felt, I, I just, I was so inspired by it. And so when one of those dancers came to me and asked if I would choreograph um, a piece for her and one of the other dancers, I said, well, of course, but, I just didn't want it to be a one and done thing. You know, if I was going to do that, I wanted it to be a larger com- conversation. I wanted to contextualize it um, in, in a way that kind of opened the door 
for uh, this really important discussion that we needed to be having because people need to know we're all here you know we're not we are having zoom parties <laughs> we are creating community whether <laughs> you know you know we are here we are doing it and we're all um creating and trying to advocate for ourselves and um so that's why that's kind of where it all happened it was this one this one idea from this overwhelming sense of community and you know i'm so grateful for that feeling and my work with Queer the Ballet, I want everyone to be able to have that feeling, whether they are in professional ballet right now, whether they are thinking of, you know, whether they are training, whether they want to be, or whether they used to dance um, and don't anymore, but remember how much joy they felt. And, you know, I think, or people that have no idea what ballet is, that, that, that ballet can be a space for them and is a space for them. And there are so many of us queer artists who are doing everything we can to um, be loud and proud and create meaningful work. I feel like you kind of did just sum up the mission of Queer the Ballet, but now I'm going to officially ask you anyway, <laughs> how would you officially describe the mission of Queer the Ballet? Like, how do you hope to change both what ballet looks like and how people inside and outside of dance think about it? Yeah, I mean, I think that the big thing is visibility. I want to um, create and foster uh, visibility and authentic representation in, in our art form. That means inclusive representation. Um, I want to lift up other queer artists and other underrepresented identities in ballet because it's, you know, it's not just me. It's not just queer women. There are so many people who um, deserve to feel seen by our community. And so I'm going to do whatever I can to lift them up. I think that there's a lot of different ways that this can happen and, this, and, and, and it can be accessible. Um, live performances are important. Um, so I'm going to continue to be pushing for that. I love dance films um, because they're so accessible. Mm -hmm. And it reminds me of when, you know, I was a young queer person trying to figure out who I was. And I would just like scour the internet for any, you know, movies or film or little clips on TV of queer women, um, any sort of representation I could even find. But yeah, so I, I think that... Um, Having dance films are, are incredibly important because they are accessible to a lot of different types of people. But then I also want Career the Ballet to contribute to the conversations that we're ha we need to be having about education and the way we train um, our young people, and the way that we train um, in the studio, both with technique, but also um, with partnering work. Yeah. Actually, I want to discuss point work in particular, um, because for so much of ballet's history, point shoes have been this like clear dividing line. Women wear them, men don't. Or if men do wear them, it's to be funny. It's a joke. Um, so how are you hoping that dancers and choreographers and educators too can reimagine point work outside of that gender binary? Well, I think, I think it's, it's very important to think of point work as a skill, um, as a skill that, that, and, and, and a technique, um, as opposed to um, something that is very gendered. It shouldn't be, it shouldn't be like in, a gender indicator, right? Um, so if we think about it in that way, I think it's a lot easier to create partnering work that's more equitable. Um, and also like we need to be thinking about the type of work that is being created on dancers who are on point. The reason why I'm saying that is because as someone who has danced on point is very proficient in point work the way that I am going to approach choreographing for someone on point is very different than someone who has never been on point before and I think we need to honor um the skill you mm -hmm. know the the profound beautiful skill that these dancers have perfected over years and years and years of their of their life it deserves to be honored in that way um but i also think it needs to be open to whoever wants to <laughs> whoever wants to pursue that skill um just as early on as you know traditionally girls um begin you know whatever whatever gender if you want to be on point you should be able to be on point and if you don't want to be on point you should be able to not be on point, no matter what gender you you identify as, and then still have a, a professional career. So I think that we need to be thinking of point work as not just a woman thing, um, as a skill that can be mastered, um, and, and think critically about the way that we use that skill on stage and in choreography. Yeah, 
It is a tool in a dancer's toolbox. Totally. Yeah. I, th- I think ballet's use of gender um, is, is problematic. And historically, I mean, if we look at where ballet comes from and, and why it is the way it is, its relationship with gender is problematic. You know, I'm not saying that we should do away with a point shoe. I truly believe that there is a way to move forward in a more equitable and respectful way. Yeah, well, clearly you do. I mean, you made this beautiful duet for two women on point, these two incredible dancers from American Ballet Theater. Um, let's let's talk about that a little bit, about this residency that you had at Bridge Street Theater. You developed this pas de deux. How did you explore new ways of thinking about ballet and identity in that piece? Like, what questions were you asking and trying to answer through that work? Yeah, so pretty directly, I was trying to answer the question, how do two women on point partner with each other? Mm-hmm. Um, because that automatically is going to, um, allow us to challenge us to question gender and, 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 you know, to, to question gender identity and in, in that space. Um, so I went about it in actually a very practical way and each day I had kind of a different goal. And so the choreography like re- kind of reflects that. So um, if you watch the piece, like the first time they touch was actually like day one. Like I, I added the the intro kind of at the end. But so when they touch their hands was was day one. And then you can see the progression of of what we did. And basically what I did was break down partnering work into five, I call them pillars. <laughs> um, so there's five kind of different pillars of the physicality of partnering work. So that's um, lifts, turns, um, any sort of like weight balance or, or counterbalance, um, promenades, or th- things that happen when, when on, on multiple movements on point. And then um, basically the way that they interact or their, the way that they present whatever connection they may or may not have on stage. So those were my kind of pillars. And then so each day I would come in and say, okay, so if you're going to lift each other, how's that going to be? You know, like, how can we do that? How can we do, how, what's our answer to each of these things that feels authentic to ourselves and our body? And not only that, but the story that we're telling. Because I also think that we need to be tailoring the movement and the way that two dancers are interacting to the story that they're telling. It's not just like we're fitting them into some rubric that already exists, right? Um, because, you know, I'm not going to just going to have two women dancing together in a tender, affectionate way without giving them their own language to speak. Otherwise, it would just feel, it would, yeah, it would feel, yeah, yeah, it wouldn't be right. So it really was just this very kind of practical approach of each day tackling one of these things. What's our answer? How do we translate that? That piece is on YouTube now, and we'll link to it in the show notes. Everybody can watch it because it really is beautiful. Um, Sort of bigger picture, what advice do you have for dancers, maybe students, maybe professional dancers who are struggling to figure out where or if they fit inside ballet? They fit inside ballet's technique. They fit inside its norms. What would you say to them? Yeah, I mean, it's not advice necessarily, but I first want to say I'm so sorry. Like, I, I'm so sorry that it's so hard. It's, you know, and you don't deserve that. You know, none, no one deserves that. And I'm so sorry, but um, you're not alone. And it's such a simple thing to say. But I think, you know, as a young person in, at SAB, I, I just the thing that I think could have made me feel so much better was just knowing that I wasn't alone and that there are other people like me who are successful and doing the work. And, um, there is a community, you know, we, we are here, we are here. So, um, you're not alone and, um, keep going and we're here if you, if you need us basically. And, you know, I'm not gonna stop. It took me a long time to get here. Um, to feel like I can claim my queerness in a confident way, um, in a graceful way in this space. Um, and I'm now that I'm here, like I'm not going anywhere. And I, I want everyone to be able to quickly do a quick little Google and <laughs> find a whole multitude of beautiful, wonderful queer artists doing amazing things. So. 
more people to have Zoom parties with. Yes, all the yeah. Zoom parties. <laughs> um, so finally, can you talk about, I know you have some exciting things coming up. So what is on the horizon for you and Queer the Ballet that listeners should know about? Well, coming up, I actually am excited to share that I have a dance film that's going to be premiering as part of the Joyce's virtual spring season um, on June 21st. I'm really excited about it. So that is coming up right now. I am going to continue moving forward and continuing to create work and collaborate with other amazing queer artists. And yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we're so excited to hear more. And um, where can listeners go to, to keep up with you and everything that you're working on? Yes, queer the, at Queer the Ballet pretty much everywhere. Um, yeah. Instagram and also and also QueerTheBallet.com. Um, basically, and that's why, you know, and it's a hashtag, hashtag Queer the Ballet, because it's, first of all, it's bigger, it's bigger than me. It's bigger than us. And then, you know, it's not, I don't own the hashtag. The hashtag is for everyone. Everyone can use it, but also it's very easy, easy to find, easy to connect, easy to find content, community, community, community as, as accessible as possible. So yeah. One Google search away, hashtag queer the ballet, <laughs> <laughs> but we'll also, we'll link to all of your pages in the show notes so people can find you that way too. Great. Adriana, thank you so much for your, your candor and for all the work that you're doing. It's greatly appreciated. Thank you. Thanks again to Adriana. We actually recorded our interview a few weeks ago when she wasn't sure how much she could say about her upcoming film, but now that cat is officially out of the bag. So just a little bit more information. As she mentioned, it's premiering as part of the Joyce's virtual season on June 21st. The piece is called Animals and Angels. It features dancers Courtney Taylor Key and Audrey Malik, aka Juliet and Juliet. They're both dancing on point. Mm -hmm. And you can find out more about that work at Joyce.org. We're so excited to see that one. All right. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. We will be back next week for more discussion of the news that's moving the dance world. Keep learning, keep advocating, and keep dancing. Mind how you go, friends. Bye, everybody. The Dance Edit Podcast is a product of Dance Media, publisher of Dance Magazine, Dance Spirit, Point, Dance Teacher, Dance Business Weekly, and the Dance Edit Newsletter. Our hosts are Amy Brandt, Courtney Escoyne, Margaret Fuhrer, and Lydia Murray. Our music is by Celestine, with special thanks to Broadway Dance Center for helping us record those footfall sounds. Find out more about The Dance Edit and subscribe to our daily newsletter at thedanceedit.com. Thank you.